Alejandro is a screenwriter, actor, and theatrical director who wants to be on the forefront of merging theatrical story and augmented reality. JC does voiceovers and game design. She loves to power lift, and she dreams of owning her own game studio in the future. Together, two friends talk about film, theater, video games, travel, books, obscure anime, and life through the eyes of two working artists while they sit at a big-ass table in North Seattle. Welcome to Others at the Table, a podcast by weirdos that the weirdos don't talk about. Okay. So, in the 90s, got you, um, I was a huge adventure game nut, especially, specifically, not especially, specifically, point and clicks. I love point and clicks. You, but, you mean like Mr. Like Monkey Island? This is where I'm getting into it. Um, I was a huge Sierra fan, you know, but while my introduction, my first hit to Sierra was King's Quest V, I guess you can say my dope dealer, my regular dope dealer was the Gabriel Knight series, um, especially uh, The Beast Within. But, you know, Roberta Williams did Phantasmagoria 1 and 2, and that's what started kind of my point-and-click horror fetish. Because, I mean, Roberta Williams is a pretty damn good horror writer. She really is. And I don't think a lot of people gave her the clout that she deserved. I, I would have really enjoyed some horror novels from her, right? So, Alejandro, I gave you homework to see the let's play or play one of my favorite games from the 90s harvester by gilbert p austin right and so i didn't tell you much about it i just told you that it was pretty artsy kind of cult classic um pretty gory but i wanted you to see the entire thing all like four hours of it six six Five hours, 52 minutes. Well, and also I came in, I don't you know if you remember, I walked in on you and you were knitting, you were watching, and there was a scene with uh, six nukes in the background. Oh, with Colonel Buster. Up. Yeah, and Colonel Buster is there. Now, he was on the ground, and I didn't ask you, but I was confused because Colonel Buster, it looked like he had glitched out and that the bottom half of his body was like in the ground, and I thought it's just just the game little did i know that it was really the secrets of colonel buster oh yeah colonel buster was dope he's still my favorite character in that whole game all right so yes you did watch me watching a let's play of it i did play the game before when i was 16 this was at the time where everyone was making video games and the video games were super duper crazy and artistic and edgy was it hard to get a hold of um, for Harvester, yes. This was at a time when um, the late Tipper Gore was censoring everything. So everything got the adult advisory sticker. And since I was working at the big blue box store at the time of my 16 years, um, I had to basically talk to some manager who talked to some other manager to let me buy it. What do you mean Blockbuster or is that actually called the big blue? I don't want to advertise them because they're not paying for this. So, <laughs> out of business and everything. Um, now, so where where did you play your 
play this guitar? Um, back when I was 16, I was fortunate enough to get my first computer. And it was a not a 386. It was a 333 megahertz Acer Tower. I remember that. I love that machine. It was so well designed, even at that time. Um, could you could you describe like the your little station that you had set up? So I had this rickety, rickety kind of desk. It looked nice, but it was really just. It, it, it tried to look like these weird, you know, those kind of like Victorian tables that had like the weird kind of carving or whatever. But it was yeah. it was all particle board and it was rickety, so I had to be careful where I was sitting. And I had my machine in the corner of my room, basically my back facing the door, and I was facing a window to my right side. That was my battle station. What could you see out the window? I could see out the window to the backyard. This okay. is when um, we moved into our house maybe a year or so previously. And I knew I wanted that space. Uh, I had lots and lots of games. I had basically this kind of painted, um, these two painted weird kind of like, I don't know what, what kind of material, they weren't wood. I would say they were clay or something, shelves, and they were full of like horror novels because I was really big into it back then. I still kind of am, but horror novels and games of different types. And the crown jewels of my collection was Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers. I had both copies, um, the original release and the VGA release. Uh, Gabriel Knight, The Beast Within, which was FMV and totally fantastic. And I still have that game downstairs to this day. I refuse to give it up. I had Phantasmagoria 1, which I beat in basically two days. Phantasmagoria 2, which I beat. And that's when I saw my first uh, homosexual kiss. Well, I was like, man, that's some edgy shit. And, um, and then it was Seventh Guest, 11 hour, 11th Hour. And then it was Harvester. So... Harvester was one of those games that I only played when everyone was asleep. Um, would you have been in trouble? Because your back was to the door. So yeah. if someone walked in on scenes, would you have been... Oh, I would have been flayed alive because I was supposedly a Christian at that time. So, oh yeah. No, 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 no. You know, I would go to Bible study on Wednesdays, sing whatever I need to sing, read whatever I need to read, wait till my mom and everything came home. When we came home, went to bed, and then I was playing Harvester. I, didn't, I had no shame. Anytime she was going to play that game, uh, that and Sam and Max hit the road. So Harvester has a very soft spot in my heart. I don't tell a lot of people that I play Harvester. Well, I'm telling people now. But back then, playing Harvester, even in the 90s, was a huge taboo. Um, the cat who wrote it, his name is Gilbert P. Austin. Gilbert decided that he was going to make a game that was going to have huge social commentary and basically kind of reality slapping you in the face. Um, and reality is there's no such thing as a good ending. It's just death. And it can be good or bad depending how you swing it. Um, but I liked Harvester. I don't even know where to start with it. Um, Harvester starts where you play a guy named Steve who wakes up 
and Steve has no idea where he is. And he's in a house he has no idea that he lives here. And he has a little brother that he didn't know he had. And a mother who's just kind of like not his mom, but says he is. And the running gag in the whole game is, oh, you're such a kidder, Steve. Which happens every time he says, I have amnesia, I don't remember this thing, why won't anyone believe me? And everyone delivers the exact same line. You're such a kidder, Steve. And you play on a compressed timeline. You, I don't know if you wake up on a Monday or Tuesday, but you have until Friday to basically try and get into the Order of the Harvest, this huge monolithic, I don't know what is monastery in the middle of town, uh, to get in because you want to get married to your fiancé um, and you want to do it in this monastery of evil. But you kind of have to do some really shitty things to get in there and everyone's kind of pressuring you to and if you don't then uh the blood drive awaits but no one tells you what the blood drive is right and so you go to different parts of town and every single person in this town is an archetype of some sort they could be conservative, they could be an immigrant, they could be gluttony. Like, everyone is basically very easy to pinpoint. You're embodying a certain yeah, a certain element aspect of society. Correct. Everyone is. And, um, and there's a reason. There is a reason. That. Completely. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I really enjoy that when, when, when a game, a movie, a book, like, it uses... A structure or a limitation and actually like justifies it within itself so they actually get more like there's a very creative reason for why everything looks sounds is the way it is yeah. it's not just the creator deciding I wanted something that feels like this no the game has a reason why that's what you experience and not anything else right yes yes um I will not go on a huge tangent rant about story and games today versus story and games back then because that'll make me sound like an old fag right but i will sound like an old fag stories and games back then were better the technology wasn't there the level design and the systems weren't really there but the story was top notch because a lot of developers read, watched film, did theater. Like, a lot of them were very, very... I want to say artsy-fartsy, but they're not really artsy-fartsy. It was just a certain quality of gamer came to the table. Well, because they had, a, they had a variety of experience because the people who were into creating games were also into... Fine know, literature. Think about, like, The Matrix. Like, that emerged out of the Wachowskis immersing themselves in video games and anime in action films of the past in cyberpunk stories of the future and right. they combined so because of who they were in the circles they incorporated certain kinds of knowledge right naturally yeah it was a lot of there was a lot of dreck back then like i'm not gonna sit here and be like oh you know everything was golden in the 90s no 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 there were some bad things in the 90s girl but <laughs> Um, when you got a story, you got a story back then, and you could really go to town on it. Could and 
Go ahead, yeah. Well, just two two questions then. Do you think that that, would it be fair to say that that's due to A, lower budgets, and B, because of the technology had many limitations, you were forced to either be more creative in the storytelling or just communicate it via like voice acting and text. So like there, because that was a more necessary element, you that was almost respected, involved more. In my opinion, I think it's C. Okay. C is that a lot of game developers don't read anymore. They don't read fiction. They're just games to games. Right. I mean, it's a lot of developers who are geniuses when it comes to systems. Um, Like, you know, procedural design and roguelikes, all these really cool systems that basically does the work for you, but they're boring and not interesting. They don't ask, why am I here and wasting my time doing this? You know, they they give you a cliche, cliched, ugh. They give you a cliched kind of synopsis of, hey, okay, this person hates his mother. Or, oh, hey, this person is like, oh, man, my dad did this to me. And, oh, I hate my dad and I'm going to prove him wrong. You know, it's a lot of cowboys and Indians. Now, I'm not saying like all stories are void in this era of gaming. There are some really great, great, great stories. Could you mention a couple that um, stick to you? Sure. Lisa is one. Even I have a hard time playing Lisa because Lisa really gets to the heart of the matter of what does it mean to be a man and what are you willing to sacrifice to maintain your manhood. I did not know being a man was that fucking hard. And it, it was funny and uncomfortable but sometimes I did cry during it because it was like damn okay one man is trying to take care of the last woman on earth wow the soundtrack's really good too but Lisa is one another one is Stardew Valley yes it is a it is a very up-resed and great clone of, you know, uh, Harvest Moon and this whole series that Natsumi did. But the developer puts in this really great story for everyone that you have to work to find, to know their personalities, what makes them tick, why are they in this small town away from, you know, in the middle of nowhere, away from the city, right? Um, there is another one uh i'm trying to think i will go back a little bit further i like killer seven um i'm a grasshopper fan i do like grasshopper killer seven to me was really really cool how you are now in the mind of a schizophrenic assassin and you get to play his or her personalities i like that you know, it was kind of like a rail, kind of, a rail yeah. kind of shooter. Well, I remember a lot of people complained about that when it came out. But, I mean, just the concept of, like, you are playing a schizophrenic, hmm. that's kind of dope. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. Could, could I share an observation? Yeah. So, in the examples that you just described, as well as from what I know of the games that, that really caught you in the 90s, what you're latching onto there is 
things that are constructed to give you something to really discover in them. Discover that's like it is much more than just mechanics or a veneer of world that allows a mechanic to exist. This is like there are pockets of humanity in this corner if you make the effort to do it. And the fact that the creator respected the audience enough to put it there and felt enough in response to the world to create anything that expresses this and then it's there for you to discover. That's the kind of experience that now and now I'm thinking about some games that on the surface, you know, contemporary recent games that, that have affected me on the surface, but then the more I look at it, the more I realize like, yeah, I'm involved with the emotional cutscene, but ultimately like it's just setting up sequences for me to play through. Right. It yeah, it it's yeah. The last one I wanted to say before we go back to Harvester yeah. was Undertale. Um, a gentleman and I at a party talked about it. Hey, Alex. Um, but he's right. He was very right about the emotional investment Undertale gives you with the challenge of actually not being a dick. And realizing you're in another world where you can impact it. You know? Like, you don't think like that. You think you're the good guy. But if you go around killing people, you're really not the good guy. No. Yeah, that's, you're not. That's a pretty textbook definition. <laughs> yeah, but you have your reasons. And they have their reasons. And that's just the way that it is. This is also, and, and then I'll, I'll let you go. But I was just watching uh, last night, a couple nights ago, this movie called Samurai Rebellion. Okay. Shiro Mifune. Okay. And the, it takes place during the Edo period. And the setup is he's, you know, the samurai for a lord. And the only thing that he's ever been valued in his life is, is his swordplay and his martial arts. And he's been uh, made fun of for it. And it was the only reason he was able to marry into this family. Right. As a son. And so now the lord casts off one of his uh, mistresses and says to, um, to Mifune, your son needs to marry this lady now. And so he tries to you know, say, we're not worthy of the honor. They try to refuse it all sorts of ways. The lady comes in, son falls in love with her. And it's all well and good. For, and they have a daughter, and it's beautiful. And then, like two years later, the Lord says, actually, for X, Y, and Z reason, I want her back now. And Mufune, for the first time in his life, says, I now see this love that is purer than my marriage. No, we're going to resist your order. Hence the rebellion of the title. And so then... The mistress ends up getting taken, and this I haven't finished the movie yet. Mistress gets taken, um, and this is where I am, and she's given the ultimatum. You can go back to your life. This is the Lord gives her this ultimatum. You can go back to your life with your daughter, but your father-in-law, Mifune, and your husband have to commit seppuku. Or you can come be with the Lord, this man you loathe, ostensibly until you die. And it's that thing where I'm watching it, and I just pause and go, what the fuck would I do? Like, it's some of the situations you described. There are also like the game achieving that thing a game can do, where you are in a position of someone else's experience yeah. in life, and you. It's a situation you haven't experienced before, a situation you haven't expected, and it gives that little spark of. Oh, what am I going to do? And then you engage in a different way. Yes. And it, Harvester asks that of you. It does. A lot of the games, I'm drawn to games that ask you hard questions. And I know I am rare in mm. that um, because I don't see games as a test of my skill. I see games as a test of my mind. And when I say that, it's not really like 
timing, memorizations, you know, none of that tactics. I'm looking at it like, how am I going to flex my mind with this person's mind? And this person wants to play a game with me, not me play the game. They want to play with me. And how will I react? Mm. And a lot of the games I play are like that. You know, um, I intentionally pick games that are difficult on the psyche because no one wants to read a book about physics for fun. There are some people who will. I'm not one of those people. I want to be transported someplace else, but to do that, I have to be asked the question, what would you do if you were in this situation? What? I'm just observing interesting parallels with real life and the the thing of being drawn playing games you're drawn to games that ask you the hard questions and you're drawn to engaging with those questions yeah that's a powerful philosophy as a human being to take into the life that we live because there are things in this world that we have to face that we don't want to face and we resist and we kick whether it's taking our vitamins because it's good for us or it's um, turning a cheek on a situation. Oh, <laughs> cheeks, cheeks. Whatever it is, turning of cheeks. I know it's a cheeky thing for me to say that. Oh no! I didn't hit the table. Thank God you didn't hit the table. But I'm just observing. It's an interesting philosophy to carry over. I guess that's probably why a lot of games, a lot of mainstream games, to me are boring. Uh, I am going to play the new Final Fantasy. I'm excited about that. And uh, I am going to play Let It Die. Can I ask Final Fantasy, are you excited on principle or is there something about the thing itself that excites you? Um, I'm excited on principle. Okay. Um, I did like 10. Um, I'm hoping that this story on the new Final Fantasy will be just as deep as the ones that I played when I was a child. Um, because the way that they up it, they're, they're trying to bring old and new fans together. And so I'm hoping it's going to give me the jollies I need to get on that epic adventure, because that's what it was, you know? Do you, do you remember the age you were with the first that caught you? Oh. Yeah. It's 12, but I couldn't get the one on Nintendo because we couldn't afford it. But somehow, some way, um, I was able to get Final Fantasy Adventure on Game Boy. That was the very first one. Um, the original Square version, not the Sunsoft version. And then I beat two, and then I beat three. Never forget how I beat three, too. I beat three with the uh, Vulcan Cannon. Never forget that. That was a great victory. And then I moved on to Super Nintendo. Um, I didn't like the final... There was a Mystic Quest. I didn't really like that one. And then it was, what, four, right? That was the one with the, the mogul on it. The mogul. Mogul is the word you're looking for? I yeah, the mogul. I said mogul. Ha. Huh? Uh, but that was the one with Terra. The one that was the epic one. The one with, you know, Kafka. And it, it, it was so good. Like, you just knew. You just knew when you heard that music that you were going to go on an adventure for a lifetime. And uh, I'm hoping 
that when I hear that music, I'm going to be going mm -hmm. on an adventure in a lifetime because that's the whole point of it. How much you, How much time will you give it? I'm going to give it at least three or four hours. And if it doesn't catch me in those three and four hours, then I'm hoping I don't put it down. Do you, do you change how much, to, like, if you, is there a sort of a s approximate set of amount of time, energy, attention you'll give a game to try it? Or does it change, like, once you've experienced a game, you go, okay, I, I can sort of, I, I know how I need to adjust my relationship to it before it's not going to work for me. Or yeah. Maybe you think about it no, I I do. I actually I give games the same amount of credit I give books. So if you don't catch me by chapter three, I'm I'm not one of those people. Who, I'll read a book and work through it. But like Star, like Stardew Valley is going to take a different amount of time to sort of get into and play with and and know your relationship to it versus something like Uncharted. Well, that's the thing. Like Stardew actually would had a really difficult precipice like right. the guy who made stardew knew his shit because there's a certain type of person who plays stardew valley or any kind of harvest moon like it's a certain type of person just like there's a certain type of person to play other kind of like twitchy games or whatever like you wouldn't ask you wouldn't ask a you know harvest moon person to play doom you know, like it's very rare you can get that type of person, but you would probably find the person who plays Doom will probably hate Harvest Moon. So the cat who fucking developed Stardew Valley knew that the people who want this game, this up res game, knew for a fact that he had to improve on everything that we hated for decades. And then on top of it, make it interesting and have his own story and take on it. So he actually had a harder kind of precipice to climb. Fair enough. I guess I, I guess I just think that like when, if I sit down with a certain type of game, like I remember sitting down with uh, Civilization Four. Civ, okay. So like that. I, I guess it's it's that. Are you aware when you sit down? Maybe this is the question. Maybe when you sit down to play a game. When you become aware, is there a point where you become aware of how its precipice is different from another game's precipice, and does that shift how much you're willing to give for it before you don't want to give anymore? When the gimmicks run off, okay. and then the story is evident if it's there or not. Like, a lot of developers don't understand that when they put their game on Steam that there are people who will play it for so long and then will say, I'm bored. And it's not being a dick about it. It's just like anything else. You wouldn't play chess by yourself, right? Unless you're practicing for someone else, but you're priming yourself to meet the mind of another person. Hmm. To kind of, to kind of, you know, like everything that we do, unless it's solitaire, but even solitaire, you are playing against yourself, but the cards are kind of personifying your own solitary kind of enemy. No, it's not your mind. It's chance. Chance is your opponent when you're playing solitaire, right? 
luck of the draw, you know? But every game that we play, anything that is for fun and concentration is priming you for someone else's mind. And if you memorize someone's system, if you memorize someone's game, if you memorize someone's boss patterns over a period of time, then what's the point? You're just like, okay, well, this is going to shoot six bullets instead of two, you know? And then you don't really have a story. They don't give you a strong enough point to do this. Would you say that there's a responsibility for game creators to... No. Okay. It's not a responsibility. I'm not even going to get on that kind of high horse. Um, Because everyone likes what they like. I'm just giving my opinion on what I like. Mm. Um, And I like good story. Some people will say... Uh, Lost Odyssey from the Xbox 360 was not a good RPG. But if you went through all the side missions and like the little snippets of story, it was actually very, very good. Very well written. Um, So much so that you could really ignore a lot of the subpar systems because the story really drove you forward. You know, who was this guy? He can never die. His wife showed up. What's up with her? You know, and you get a bit of his travels along the way. But a lot of games made by younger developers aren't that. They're just puzzles. They're like, okay, figure a way out of this box. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, we're going to do this in 3D space. You sort of drop tools and say, pick these and, and fight your way out. I think a lot of game developers don't understand. They're not game developers. They're glorified engineers. Mm-hmm. And they're making games for other engineers. But I'm not an engineer. You know, I want a story. I want a point. Do you think you could put your finger on what separates an engineer from a game developer in in your definition of it? Or a game developer from an engineer? I think a game developer wants to tell a story through pixels. I think an engineer wants to create obstacles in pixels. And to have a story, you do need obstacles. I mean, that's you, you always have a beginning, a climax, and an end. You have to make that person work to the part where everything melts down, right? Any film, any theater, any book always has that. There has to be a point of why you're going on this adventure. There has to be something where everything goes ham and then there has to be an end where it's it's resolved, be it good or bad, right? And a lot of games that I've played lately that have not really been a majorly story-driven has been more of, oh, shit, man, now you have this gun and you can go ahead and put cow udders on it and you can slap people in the face. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but why am I slapping people in the face with it? I don't know, because it's cool. All right. Off. (laughs) With what you seek in games, do you find you seek it elsewhere? Does it translate to movies or books or life? Man, you got totally existential with that one. Um, You opened the door. (laughs) No, not with life. I've given up on movies. I have. I feel horrible to say that I've given up on 
on 3D American movies. And it's not that I hated them. I used to be a huge film buff. I used to be a huge, huge film buff. I mean, when the Sundance Channel came, that's where I was. And I remember the last really great movie that moved me was this French movie called Mon Vie en Rose. Mm -hmm. And it was about this kid who thought he was a girl. And he really did. It wasn't like he was going through some kind of sexual kind of like, I want to be a girl. He thought he was born a girl. And how the family in this conservative French neighborhood had to deal with it because he was mm. weird. Everyone, everyone was trying to kind of like shield him from this, except for his grandmother. His grandmother let him just do whatever he wanted to do and dress up. Huge fucking like conflict between the father and this boy and then it switches to the mother and this boy and he tries to kill himself. And you know how he tries to do it? He tries, he's, he hides in the house. No one can find him. And he tries to die of hypothermia. He puts himself in a freezer with a rose on his chest. And I'm sorry, when you see some shit like that, you don't want to see Doctor Strange. Like, sorry, it's like when you see some deep shit like that, like that's film. And so I judge every movie on that because how I felt that that just moved me to tears. It moved me to tears at like 22. Um, it was another movie that was with, what was it? Not Robert De Niro. Um, Robert Downey Jr. And it was Tanning. Robert Downey Jr. and Channing Tatum, Remembering Your Saints. A Guide to Remembering Your Saints. A Guide to Remembering Your Saints. That was, Child of Buff is also in there, right? that was an awesome movie. Awesome. It made me feel, especially when the dude got killed with a bat. I'm like, that's some vengeance. Holy crap. But that was so good. So when it comes to a lot of... I'm sorry. Guide to Recognizing. A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. Um... I actually saw that when it was in Los Angeles. It was a limited screening. A lot of the films that I like, they don't really go anywhere because America doesn't have the taste for them except for like the hoity-toity Americans. Um, Love Field with Michelle Pfeiffer, where she thought she was Robert Kennedy's wife and she drove all the way across the country, basically. She had an interracial... Uh, inter racial relationship with a guy on the way there. Do you know when I lived in Texas, they pulled that after a week? Never forget that. So I've given up with a lot of today's film. Like I know there's good film out there, but now I just no longer have the patience to dig and find, you know? And I'm not trying to say when I was younger, it was better back then. It's, it's all relative. Completely all relative. I just know from my tastes, there has to be a really good point. It has to ask you that question, right? What would you do? What would you do if this was your son? What do you think about something that puts you through an experience? 
rather than asking a question. It's that through the way that it's made and designed, it is able to just sort of grab you and drag you into a new experience for an hour, two hours. And, and so perhaps you are, it's, you know, it's the character's experience, but it isn't asking you a question. It's just you are undergoing a journey and very viscerally because of how it's been crafted. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and give you an answer to that. Have you ever watched the erotica movie called Zazel? <laughs> no. So then ask me that question after you watch that, and I'll give you an answer. Z-A-Z-E-L. Zazel. Then we can have a solid discussion about the visceral of how the visceral. I, I guess it's kind of like the, um, was it the, uh, when I have to prostrate myself and just follow the experience of where I'm given, what I'm given from this person. I guess Zays will kind of answer that for me when I watched it. Yeah, Zazel did that. My fireplace is like, hello. <laughs> um, Zazel did that for me. And yeah, we should talk about Zazel later. But I will tell you this long story, you know, too long didn't read. Nah. Because the whole point of art, to me, is to make a person question their reality. Mm. If I want to watch a filmmaker jack off, he can just do that himself. Well... Now, I, I, see, I guess what I was getting at was the kind of story where by, dra by bringing you into experience, and it doesn't have to be in that, like, for example, I saw a play in Dublin in 2011 called Heroin, and it was about the introduction of heroin into Ireland, which was really through one family, and the play was presented in such a way, and nothing, I saw it with my class, none of us liked it. And we talked about it later, and we met the director. And what we came to realize was that the play itself was designed to feel like a heroin trip. And that's why we didn't like it. And that, to me, for a long time, I was not, I was having none of that. I said that was a terrible artistic decision because I couldn't engage with the things it was because I was having a shit time. Because I felt I was on a bad trip. But there is another side of that spectrum where someone is able to make you question your reality precisely because they put you through. I'm talking, for example, about, have you seen El Topo? No, I have not seen El Topo. So, Alejandro Khodorowski, 86 years old, still making movies. Um, I mean, the, it's a dark, weird, strange movie. Um, it's the kind of thing where like, you get through half an hour and you go, I don't remember how I got here, but it all made sense at the time. And you've gone from like seeing a man in black with a naked child ride through the desert on a horse to like rescuing cripples from an underground cave who have been cast out by their society and leading a revolution. It's, just, it's a strange fever dream movie, but you come out of it. Or like this other movie I told you about, Hard to Be a God. Um, this Russian sci-fi felt like I came out of it and I was, I was eating lunch with a friend and these two people walked by carrying canoes 
kayaks just in the middle of London. And they walk past and he's talking and I just look at the, the kayaks go and the experience of watching the movie had made me notice things in a different way. So it did change the way that I experienced my reality. Hmm. It made me more observant. It, it engaged me in a different way. So Interesting. that could be a matter of it can be a powerful tool and some people might jack off with it. Some people might use it for ill, but it's also okay. could be transformative. I mean, I haven't seen anything recent, recent that did that. I will say this. I did watch this uh, <laughs> this movie, Rubber. <laughs> I love the shit out of Rubber. <laughs> that was a weird movie, but it made no sense. But it was a trip, and it was a funny one. Mm. I liked Rubber. Um, rubber is very useful. Rubber is very useful. That's a very, that's a, whoever wrote and directed that, you know what, dog, you're awesome. Because I don't look at tires the same way anymore. I'm just like, when am I going to be a part of this top tire re- revolution? When is it going to happen? When are they going to just come in like, dressed up like black tires, not black panthers, black tires, and be like, in black tires. And just like, I'm just going to look at you, lady, and your head's going to explode. Pow! You know, like, oh man. But, you know, that was a concept of anything, right? Anything, if it's visceral enough and just kind of kooky enough, uh, you can do it. You can swing it. I will say another movie that kind of changed my perspective, if we're talking about perspective, was um, two movies. Well, three. Three, actually. She's Got to Have It. Oh. Daughters of the Dust. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Those three movies changed a lot about film for me. I guess that's probably what got me hooked on that hard question. Because every single one of them had a hard question. You know, I, I watched... She's got to have it on the plane. Oh. And it's still... Good. St- I, mean, like me, I mean, from the opening credits, which, you know, are the... It's actually kind of what I was trying to do in our play. It didn't work for a variety of reasons. Um, but to try to just grab people from the start and make them pay attention to what's going to happen. Right. And then... Shit. Yeah. I'm thinking of a different movie. I was thinking to do the right thing. No. Well, I mean, yeah. But She's Gotta Have It was touching on stuff that even back then a lot of African Americans didn't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like a, a black woman who's an infomaniac. That brings up the question of, yes, there's lots of sex involved, but she's mentally ill. How do we handle that? Right? Mm-hmm. Daughters of the Dust... You should watch that. It's actually, um, it's won many awards. Was basically about the Geechee. The what? The Geechee. So slavery didn't happen in a straight line in America. There were still some people who went to the swamps and basically made their lives in the swamps of Louisiana, the bayous. And off the coast of the Atlantic, there are a few islands that's around North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. And this is where a lot of the Geechee ran off to, right? These were basically the people brought over as chattel 
They said, fuck that. And they went to these islands that were deemed inhabitable by the rest of the United States, the Geechee. Fun fact, Michelle Obama is Geechee. Damn. Like, those are the few black people who came to the United States who said... immediately... Who said God slavery God. was for suckers and got the hell out of Dodge and moved to places where nobody wanted to go. Because, I mean, come on, mosquitoes and swamp or whatever. But Daughters of the Dust was basically a story of this group of Geechee people who've lived there for years, years, years. And now the younger generation wanted to be a part of the United States. They wanted to leave the island. I mean, this sounds like this is doing exactly what the games that you love do. It's, yeah. it's, you're, it's like you're there, you're in that society. Um, people who got dr- kidnapped thousands of miles in chains, and cha- and they just they get out. And you're, you're in this new land. You have to, if you're going to survive outside of that system, you may do however you can. And then that's challenged. So, oh, that is but it's question. such a good film. It's not yeah. even on the, it, this is the thing, it's not on the prospect of America's bloodstained hand of race it's actually a different perspective of a coming to age story mm-hmm. do you continue the traditions where the traditions were born or do you take your traditions and share them with the rest of society i gotta see this movie yes daughters of the dust is an excellent excellent movie and sex lies and videotape that made me question the relationship between two people who say they love each other. How truthful are they? Right? How truthful are they? For real. And even when I was young, when that came out, it was such a huge movie for me because this is what I saw as a kid when the door wasn't closed. You know, the arguments that happen, the questions, the digging, the interviews. It, it, it felt like a detective movie, but it wasn't. I mean, someone's love was murdered and everyone's being interviewed, right? Cool thing is the woman who played the younger sister in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. She actually did another movie, which some people may not like. I... Loved it. Why did I love it? Because she played another film with that again called Nina Takes a Lover. And Nina is separated from her husband and she's trying to live her life. She works in a bookstore, I think. And so this dude who's a photographer comes by and he's like, hey, Nina, your husband's not around. It's kind of like Stella, Stella got her groove back, but in New York, but it takes a really weird turn at the end. And then that question comes up again, right? From the very beginning of this podcast, the hard questions, what would you do in this situation? No one I know who asked me why I liked it ever watched it. Say it was too dated, but you know, it's okay. I don't mind. The, those movies, uh, well, that and Christopher Reeves and Bump in the Night, you know, kind of did its thing. Um, it kind of asked those questions. And so it kind of tapered my taste to games 
I do ask those questions. What would you do? I mean, you can still have fun. I'm not saying that it doesn't always have to be this hard, edgy, like, oh, shit, we're wearing black and here's some bongos and we're going to make it art today. No, it doesn't have to be that. (laughs) (laughs) But, But it does have to have a point. Like, why, why would you want to read something that you know is going to be bad? Like, you just know it. Like, no, I mean, I, I've, and I've, I've gone the same way with, with films myself. Like, I, I just, I, I used to keep this list of everything I'd seen, and I think it's, it's not that many compared to a lot of people. Like, I'd hit a certain number by the time I got to school last year, and somewhere around March, as a result of all the thinking I was doing and conversation with a flatmate and just my own writing experiences, I shifted projects and started writing that was meant to very much be bringing people into an experience of light, sound, emotion that wasn't quite a straight narrative. Um, I just, it suddenly just tapered off right. down to a trickle because all of a sudden there were so many tricks I felt I could see and, and if I just decided to be honest where if I wasn't engaged with something by a certain point I wasn't gonna I was just gonna respect myself and turn it off and keep but then I still keep looking right things and like I just saw a movie called Arrival just came from my second viewing of it in fact and it's something that very much like it's one of those things I guess for me where it did exactly everything I wanted to do like artistically right in something and I didn't know it was gonna do that and it, in the first time I saw it, I was, I mean, I have a recording. I was screaming in the street. I was bawling in front of people for like 10 minutes. You are so emotionally in tune with yourself. I was, I was a fucking wreck after this. And, and part of what it does is like it, it, there's a point in the movie where you realize that the movie itself is reflecting what's happening. Like the entire structure of the movie reflects what's happening to the characters. Right. Uh, and then I realized that I was completely into that. I knew what I was doing as an audience member and played on that right. as part of its telling. Okay. Hmm. So it has to engage you. It has to engage all of your senses. That, well, that's where I've, I've... My mom was actually telling me the other day because I, I try to go to the ballet with her because she's able to get tickets and she works there. And... There was one time I almost got up and like the artistic director was sitting next to me and I almost wanted to get up and talk to the dancers and there are times that I've left and she said, you've gotten super critical and I said, well, it's this art. I'm not fucking around. I was, my mom says, you got super critical and I said, this is art. I am not fucking around. If I'm not engaged, I'm starting to get angry at the potential of something if it doesn't sync up with as much of me as a human as possible. You know, we were talking about Harvester and the questions and stuff like that. You hit that on the head. Yes. These are games and I'm not fucking around. Like, I'm not going to drop 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 bucks if you're not going to engage me. In hours and hours and hours of your... Time. But I try to keep it balanced, right? Because I... You want to be an adult about it and realize some games are not meant for you. 
Like just because you decided to keep a part of your childhood wonder in your heart does not mean that this developer is making this game for you anymore. You're an adult. They did their job. Good point. They, you know, they did their job. But then I think about it and I think about, all right, when I was a kid, how much did a Super Nintendo cost back in the day? 200 bucks, 250 with everything, right? And a Genesis cost like 250, you know, people who were super rich and got like a Neo Geo fucking system at home had like 500 bucks. You were balling, right? That was like, whoa, dude, you got the Lambo of the game system. It's like a, what, 500 to like a thousand for the Neo Geo? And you can have like the card and take with you to like the arcade and, you know, do your save and shit. You know, there were some systems back then that were like, they were pricey back then, but they were doable. Like you could still pull it off, right? If you did a paper route or something like that, you could, you could pull it off. But now we have these game systems that costs like $400. Like it, the, the bar is high. I don't know anybody who do paper route <laughs> <laughs> to buy these systems. So these systems are really for adult wallets. But then, you know, you, you're making games that are kind of for kids. That's not really fair. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, there's still more people in their 30s and late 20s buying these systems than they are someone who's like 15 or 16 asking for them. You know, because they can play games on their phone or whatever. You know? Hmm. So I guess maybe I'm in the wrong entirely. Well, I don't think I'm in the wrong entirely. I guess I feel that you have to cater to your age group. Right? And if those same people who played, you know, Day of the Tentacle back in the 90s when they were teenagers are playing this now it's your job as a developer to cater to that that is a developer's job unless they specifically want to do children's games you know or preteen games but then you have to know the market for that right and that's someone's phone or whatever you know but it's not really fair you know to make a game that doesn't have a point. Well, it's, it seems like that, that this is another way in which, at least in terms of the big budgets, games and cinema are stuck in the same rut. Right. In terms of like you have all these resources and sort of, and, and, and you're tr- because it's all about making back money, you put out something that is. tame enough in the way that it challenges, dresses, deals with its user. I mean, I'm not, I know that my nerd cred when it comes to films goes way down because I don't really flock to a lot of Marvel movies anymore. Um, I don't really flock to a lot of superhero movies anymore. I feel kind of cheated. Now, I do like Cage. Cage is amazing. Thank you for doing that right. Um, But, like, you know, a lot of the other movies that come out, I'm just like, you're you're jacking off now and you're trying to give me my childhood uprest. 
Nothing in my life will ever break me than the death of Superman. I had the entire series. I had that series to the point where I even had the limited edition poster where you had all of DC carrying his casket. That was amazing to me. You know, as a teenager, right? The Man of Steel dies. And you have that two-page spread of Lois holding his broken body, bleeding, punctured, just gone. And she is like wailing to the heavens. Mm. And you have those who did survive in the background. Heads bowed. Broken concrete. And you know the gravity of this, even as a teenager back then, right? Because it's like, this is a man that everyone feared. He was perfect. And now he's dead. And you know what happens? They bring his ass back. So I'm just like, okay, y'all. Y'all full of shit. For reals. Then X-Men had Professor fucking X dying. And then you had the X-Factor, X-Force, X-Men fucking crossovers. I'm just like, all right. You know? And so that's how I feel now. Like when I see Doctor Strange, I'm like, all right. Look like fucking Reed Richards in drag. I'm just like, (laughs) okay. You know? And... (laughs) And, like, uh, I was feeling it when I saw the first Iron Man. I'm like, oh, you know you did this right. And then two and three, I'm just like, ah, you know? So I just kind of give up on mainstream nerdy movies. You know, I'm not a a big Doctor Who fan either. You know, I I have actually never seen a single... That's a shame. There goes my nerd cred. That's a shame. So how how do I fix that? Where do I start? At least watch Tom Baker's Doctor Who. Okay. Like, I stopped with Tom Baker. I tried to pick it back up, but he was my favorite doctor. He just was. I don't know why. You know, I know they have so many doctors and the Chuck Taylors and all that stuff, but it was Tom Baker to me was just like the who. Who? Like, what? Who's on first? I don't know. (laughs) Don't Jigga what? <laughs> um, but that's, you know, I, I guess when it comes to that, it's just like I, I don't find a lot of point with um, a lot of mainstream stuff. It seemed like it's just kind of like you're a walking coffee table book. You know, there was a movie a couple of years, more than a couple of years, called Oblivion. Tom Cruise, Morgan Freeman, Andrea Riseborough. Tom Cruise is still alive? Oh, yeah. I thought Still that alive and running. Dude, I thought that cult he was a part of would have like eaten him like Jesus or something like body blood all that stuff. I, I don't know he's still around. Not yet. Not yet. But um in th- this movie it was the uh, same director as Tron Legacy. So just visually it was g- and gorgeous and they put all sorts of tricks, but I'm sitting there watching it and I watched noticed myself like Observed that it hit every single beat it was supposed to hit in terms of the rise of the falls when things go ham when it's darkest night and all that jazz and I didn't feel anything about it it's like it looked beautiful it technically was on point 
I could hear the voice in my head of, Sam, of like the executives who had gotten the script and said, this is the most beautiful thing we've ever read. And I'm just sitting there going, I, I can hear the music. You want me to feel hard here, but I just don't. So does that open up a question for you? Are you just too snobby? Or did they not ask the question, what's the point? Did they not answer it for you? It was certainly the beginning of my being much more uh, or less lenient in the my art experience, I guess, to put it however that sounds. Um, but it's okay. Well, this is an interesting thing because I was reading a screenplay the other day of a true story, World War Two assassination story. It takes place. It's uh, takes place in Czechoslovakia. People sent in from London. They par- beginning of the script. They parachute in, and their mission is to assassinate the fourth. Basically, you know, it goes Hitler, and then the two people, and then this guy. Mm-hmm. And their job is to assassinate him, and they immediately start on the mission. And so I make it to about page 45, 50. They've met some girls who are in on the mission as well. They're scoping the guy out, setting up their plan. And I just sat back and went, I know the evil that this person did. They said all of it. Why don't, why am I not invested in them succeeding in this mission? So like technically I was, but there was something missing in the conjunction of telling character, their relationship to it, and the task itself, something didn't sync up there for me, and I've been noticing it increasingly. And so maybe it is a matter of why that, like, I don't know why, like, that it's too general for the characters, and then I don't sync up to it. I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know, I don't know either. Um, maybe we're being bold talking about it. Like, maybe we're being bold asking, is this really it? This has been Others at the Table, a podcast by weirdos that the weirdos don't talk about. Updates every two weeks on Mondays, and check us out on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. For updates, and to check out our blog, check out Last Train Theatrics, L-O-C-E-M-O-T-E dot me, locemote.me. Again, that's locemote.me. Sound design and recording is by Puri, LLC. Music by Justin Mehar. It's called Pumped.